ABMP Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from Heal Well. Massage therapists and body workers who join ABMP get meaningful resources that make a difference in your career, including free online CE courses, online scheduling included with the ABMP Pocket Suite app, and comprehensive liability insurance that provides protection and peace of mind. Can't get enough podcast inspiration and information? Listen for the ABMP podcast with regular guest hosts Ruth Werner and Allison Denny. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. Welcome to Interdisciplinary. Here we are in uh, season 10, I believe, and uh, we have another amazing guest for you. We're so glad to be here to lift up the voices of humans who care for humans so that we can all do that a little better than we might be doing it uh, when, we, when we log in each time. We're also really grateful to the folks at ABMP, the Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals, who generously sponsored the show to make sure we can get out, out here to you guys and share our messages. Uh, so as you know, we like to start with a pun, and uh, as usual, this one's pretty bad. What happens if someone slaps you at high frequency? It hurts. That's right. So, <laughs> oh, you guys, our guest just sort of winced in a in a really endearing way. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm here today with uh, Andrea Levant, and we're going to just let, um, you know, I forgot to ask you, are you, what are your pronouns? She, her. Okay. She, her. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to just let her tell us uh, who she is and um, what she's doing in the world, and we'll see where we go from there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So I am Andrea Levant. Um, I identify, it kind of always depends on the day of, of what's popping up first, but Black disabled woman. Um, and I, goodness, um, you know, I think I've transitioned from, you know, at one point, one would say advocate to activist, particularly when it comes to disability justice, which I hope that we'll get into a conversation around today. And um lead a, a fabulous consulting company um, that is uh, made up of primarily disabled uh, black and brown folks. And, and our focus is, is really on shifting narratives and shaping, we say shaping the way that the world reaches, views and values disabled people. And that is particularly with that lens of, of intersectionality, um, kind of how we approach our, approach our work. So Really excited to be here for today's conversation. Thank you for being here. We, um, we, one of our board members, uh, Kelly Mack, is uh, she writes and works for disability justice. And uh, when we were putting together the season, we're we're glad to sort of be stretching out our season where we were talking to people about code switching because we we could finally wrangle you into our our calendar. Yay. But I I asked Kelly. Um, she uh, has lived with rheumatoid arthritis uh, for her whole life and is a wheelchair user and. 
I said, you know, who should we talk to in the season? And she was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if you can get Andre Levant, but you should <laughs> totally reach out and see. And so, um, like you're, you're a celebrity. I mean, you yeah. have really done some impactful things and really changed lives. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited to see where you want to take us. I mean, you said like, I hope we'll get to disability justice. Yeah. Why, let's just yeah. go right there. Like, okay. I mean, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, you know, um, I, I often talk about, you know, as a how I shared at the beginning, a black disabled woman. I um I grew up in a, you know, a family. My parents went to historically black colleges. You know, there was this sense of um of pride when it came particularly to blackness. It was you know, I grew up in the era of um, a different world, Hillman College, you know, like, um, you know, all of the things that it's, I'm Black and I'm proud of that movement, you know, folks were, you know, heavy into kente cloth and, you know, that was just, that was, and so I, I had that sense um, there. However, also, also was born with a physical disability and I am a wheelchair user and um, and didn't have, you know, like many of us with, with this with disabilities, um, you know, community in that way, or really connection to folks that particularly proudly identified, um, you know, as disabled. It was, you know, um, I am, uh, we call ourselves Jerry's orphans. Folks have likely heard of Jerry's kids, the muscular dystrophy telethon. I was one of those folks with that diagnosis. And so grew up around, you know, the concept of charity and grew up in the Black church where, you know, brokenness is um, connected to disability. And so often, you know, the desire is to, to pray it away and, mm. you know, figure out how to be healed. And, um, and so there was a shame connection there. And so I think I spent, I, I well, not even I think, I, I know that I spent you know, childhood into early adulthood, really trying to get people to not um, see see the disability. And so, you know, I um, moved up from the South to Washington, D.C., where I started my career, started encountering some barriers um, just when it came to, you know, what we identify. And the reason I'm sharing this story is I'm going to start with disability rights, because a lot of times people use those terms interchangeably, disability rights and disability justice. And there's a distinct and important difference, you know, um, both very, uh, you know, impactful and, and necessary. And so when I entered that, you know, A, my own inaccessibility navigating the world um, was also introduced to folks that, you know, if you all haven't heard of Judy Human and Ed Roberts and yeah. Um, and um, Justin Dart and others that were pillars in moving forward um, some legislation, particularly the Americans with Disabilities Act. And prior to that, um, um, the uh, 504, uh, which was which Section 504, which was part of the Rehabilitation Act that um, ensured the federal buildings were accessible. So I was introduced to this idea that, wow, in the same way that I had grown up, you know, learning about Black history, there was this robustness when it came to disability history that I had been honestly unfamiliar with. And, you know, I think a lot of times folks, when we 
when we are able to make a connection to people that have, you know, advocated and that have ensured that we can have what we have today, that starts to like create a sense of, oh, you know what, like there is a community, there's people that have really worked hard and I want to be a, a part of that, but also I can see a sense of like, okay, this is something that I can embrace in the same way that, you know, um, I, I grew up uh, feeling about both my gender identity and also my race. And so started out in that world. And then some years later, you know, brought to my attention that, you know, I, and I hadn't really thought about it. Um, but the idea of disability justice is, you know, centering the perspectives, experiences, and needs of those of us at the intersections that have these this multiply marginalized um, experience, you know. And when I thought about it, and even when I thought about the leaders of the disability rights movement, I'm like, you know, all those <laughs> all were white people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and they were all physically disabled people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, disability um, is so diverse and, and we use, you know, the, um, the statistic that one in four people are disabled in America. And yet, um, you know, there are other statistics that we've learned with, you know, one in four black people are disabled, one in six, you know, Latinx, you know, people are disabled, so on and so forth. And so, um, disability justice, bringing around long story is, is really acknowledging that, our experiences, even within disability, are not the same. And quite honestly, um, for those of us that are at those intersections of, um, you know, the margins, uh, we are treated very differently, generally a lot less when it comes to access to resources. Um, when we think about the healthcare system, when we think about the education system and our Black, you know, Black boys and, and the school to prison pipeline, um, you know, when we think about just how I'm treated in a room, if I was sitting next to a white disabled man, you know, um, I use the analogy quite a bit that a ramp, which is really what when we think about disability rights and access is going to get me and this white disabled man into the same room. But once I get into that room, how am I going to be treated? And that's where we see disability justice show up. And so that's, that's, the work that we do. Wow. So you, so you, and you consult. So who, who comes to you and says like, what do they say? Like when, when people come to your firm and say, we need your help, what kind of help do they think they need? And is it the help that they actually need? (laughs) Mm, That's a really great question. I will say that we, I think have been, what I think is a privilege of of being able to be selective um, about who we work with and particularly over the past few years um, as we've between you know the pandemic response and racial unrest that you know we continue to see so on and so forth you know there are so many folks that are you know whether it's DEI DEI B, D, E, I, you know, there's so, so many like uh, alphabet soup letters that, um, you know, we are, um, you know, seeing and experiencing. And so, you know, the folks that we work with, we, there's a variety, honestly. And um, 
it, it's everything from you know nonprofit organizations to corporations and names of, of folks that that people would would really know and we really talk a lot about you know not checking the box we are not we don't work on baseline accessibility just for the sake of saying that you met some compliance code you know we're not about um you know we have this employee and kind of hand them off you know um or you know we're in a crisis mode and fix this we really are about um you know working to support infrastructural you know or systemic change even within organizations and we see that two different ways which is why we work with a variety of clients we have some you know that um it is in the internal you know work of we want to create um an erg you know an employee research group that is really strong when it comes to you know disability it could be um you know looking at hiring practices looking at um you know handbooks creating you know guidelines and you know things like that that are um going to be things that people want to learn about and and again not just say that we did um them but we also because we um really focus on, on strategy and communication um are really when we when we think about the way that the world reaches reaches uh disabled people um a lot of our focus is in the marketing and, and representation space so that is supporting you know marketing campaigns but again not just from a tokenism oh you have a disabled person but from beginning to end whether it's you're hosting an event whether it's a you know um a project or a program that you're building that disabled people are a part of the process um and their decision makers and that you don't just see them at the end um of, of a process <laughs> but even that our organizations are actually learning along the way you know like how how what um what to do so and we do that in a variety of of ways but our big thing is that we're not we're not the folks that we really are not in a position of trying to convince people that they need us. Um, when people come to us, it's that they've recognized that they have a need. And I think that is, that's the distinction um, yeah. for us. Yeah. You know. And do you, so folks, so certainly a self-selecting group, I mean, it's very mm -hmm. clear from your website that this is not where you come to push your peas around on the plate. Like if you want exactly. to like, no. do the work, mm -hmm. but I exactly. think there's still, I imagine there's a similar disconnect. You know, we, we do a lot at Heal Well to talk with white folks about the importance of looking at whiteness and the impact mm -hmm. of that. And, and so we have these self-selecting groups of people who say, oh, I want to, I want to dig into that. And then they show up and they go, oh, Oh no, that I sorry, that looks hard. And I wonder like how often do you encounter people who really don't understand how deep it is and how much of a role they've played even in their passivity? And what what how, how do you what do you do with that? That's uh -huh. we, you know, <laughs> um our approach, we try at least um, you know there's the phrase phrase you know you get more flies with honey so our goal is to kind of assess uh genuine um you know desire and um often 
we end up connecting with somebody within the organization that is a champion and 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 that can be you know a, a disabled person often as disabled people we find ourselves before i started the firm you know i'm the only disabled person within an organization um and that means you're the one that's having to be the advocate and the expert on things that I was just here to hire me to do a job and all of these other things I should not, you know, I, I shouldn't have to give you advice or expertise on how to make this work or how to consider disabled people over here if my job is here to be a lawyer, you know, or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for us, we find ourselves often um, with some sort of connection to someone that has internally been trying to do the work and needs the support. And I think that um, kind of fuels us because we see it, um, we really approach things from a partnership perspective um, mm -hmm. where we're listening for the language of whoever the person is that reach out to us um, and going, okay, they get it. And so if there's somebody internally that can kind of help move things forward it makes it a little bit easier, um, for the interactions with others, you know, they often talk about executive level buy-in. And then I think, you know, that is huge. We The people that are the significant decision makers, we're always looking for um, them to, at some level, you know, be engaged. And depending on the size of the company, it's not going to necessarily be the CEO, but at least, you know, folks that have internally assessed. Sometimes people come to us and they're like, look, we did you know, an audit on and, and <laughs> on ableism within, you know, our company or, or we did, you know, some work here and people are saying these things. And so for us, we see, we see ourselves in that way. It makes it a little bit, um, I won't say easier, but it, it, it helps move, move us forward. I will say though, at the end of the day, um, if there's a point where, you know, we've had situations where we've had to go, you know, what this is, this is not for us and, and kindly um, um, bow out because yeah. as particularly as disabled people of, you know, color and I, and I say this, um, you know, I think we talked about at the beginning kind of being no holds barred. A lot of times we find conflict with people that identify with us in one way um, and so they think that they get it. So it could be that there is a white disabled person within an organization and they feel like they know what they know. And it can be um, sometimes even overpowering or um, feel in essence, our investment um, of our own emotional labor can become so heavy because yeah. we're trying to, you know, in people's attempt to relate their also um creating dissonance like within you know that group or community and so that's the case sometimes whether it's working with you know a person of color um within an organization that you know I get it we get this we only need you for this we only need you to talk about this and we're like no 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 we have to bring you know the whole to the forefront or when we were we work with disability organizations that are like okay we get we get disability we need you to talk about race over here and we're like that's not it it's not separate you know like yes. it all has to come together yeah and we all have to come with the open you know open mind 
Yeah, that's uh, my next question was going to be sort of how do you address the intersectionality? Because I'm sure people come expecting sort of an a la carte approach and that, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, it, it that's not how it is in reality. Mm-hmm. And and I, I feel like there's such a tendency for people to say, oh, I see now you're going to get political. And it's like, yes. no, it's, you know, <laughs> no, and, yeah, it's reality. You know, yeah. um, it is it is reality. And we you know, and it's not for us, it's not just about talking, you know, about it. It's like, we just had an event earlier today and we had, you know, a black uh, interpreter um, because we are not just saying it and then not practicing, you know, these things ourselves. Um, And so it's important um, for us to kind of speak to to all of it um, and to our diverse experiences, both within the team and also disability, you know, another big thing, if, if, if folks kind of think of the trajectory over, you know, the decades, there's always kind of a hot disability that people are, you know, talking about it. It, it, It's it's down syndrome at one point, it's autism at one point, you know, it's, it's, it ebbs and, and flows and, 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 again, to my point about disability rights, that was heavy on physical disability and kind of acknowledging that. And so again, you know, for us, it's it's even moving past those traditional um, narratives and who has the space, you know, um, in terms of, you know, neurodiverse, you know, conversation, neurodiverse people as part of, um, you know, just company work that those, Particularly, you know, I I can remember having conversations with folks that, um, you know, are are non-speaking and so that, you know, that that don't have space. There's so much when it comes to the idea of intersection. That's really what I'm saying here Um, that we think we get if like if we have three, you know, okay, like we we got these three (laughs) things, but you're still often leaving, you know, some some folks out. And so as much as, you know, within the disability community, we talk about the difference between person first language and identity first language, which is, you know, um, person first is, uh, there was this movement, particularly for folks with cognitive disability, where um, people were identifying them solely based on that, you know, it's, you know, the Down syndrome person, or we have these euphemisms, the crippled person or the handicapped, uh, you know, the handicapped girl or this, that, and the other. And it's like, no, you know, at the core of who I am, I am a person. And so it was the idea of I am a person with a disability. Isabel has a disability, you know, um, Martin has Down syndrome, those, those types of things. And it, and it makes sense, right? Like that a person wants to be acknowledged there. You know, over, I would say, the past decade or so, there's been the emergence of what's known as identify identity first language. And that is where, when I think back to, you know, what I was sharing about, um, you know, being a Black disabled woman, you know, I say I'm Black. I don't say I'm a woman with Blackness or a person <laughs> with Blackness, right? Or, right. you know, if you're identifying religion, you know, he's Jewish. You aren't saying like he is a Jewish person. And so in the same way that we kind of, you know, embrace those aspects of our identity, there are those of us that, um, you know, you know, we say I'm disabled and, you know, that's why I'm a black disabled woman. Um, 
But and the reason why I bring that up is they're still at the core. When I say Black disabled woman, I, I'm a person and my unique experiences for so many other reasons just beyond those identities impact the way that I am treated and also how I experience the space. I'm from the South. I you know, grew up in a religious family. I'm, you know, all these other things that if you even put me next to a Black disabled woman, you know, like we can, we still be so completely different, you know? Yeah. Well, I feel like what you're, what you're pointing to, you know, when we're talking about the difference between cultural competency and cultural humility, that so much, I imagine that on some level, some of the people who seek you out are inspired by that sense of wanting to never get it wrong again. Yes. And, and like, yes, it's impossible. It is impossible. And yeah, we get it. I mean, the evolution of language of I mean, there was if you look back at at, uh, you know, hearings from disability, they were using the words handicapped, you know, like that's that's what it was at the time. There's so many organizations that have had to go to you know, their acronym, because if you were to actually spell out like what it is that the words meant, like, right, you can't say that anymore, <laughs> you know, totally. Um, there's so many like that. So um, we have to like, we're going to continue to, um, you know, I, I was a huge proponent, proponent of person first language when I started in this work. Um, and I, that's, you know, I was advising, advising, you know, folks on using that. And I remember at my um, previous job, like when I came in in 2011, I had cre- I created a training, and that was you know the language that we were using. And I think you know when I left in 2018, I remember about 2016 or so being at an event, and a friend of mine you know, uh, an autistic uh, friend of mine came and said, you know, Andrea, I saw that you're, you, like, there's person first language on the website. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I didn't think much of it. And um, in my own learning as a disabled person, I'm like, well, what do you, like, I don't, I don't understand, you know? And so <laughs> I went and redid our training, you know, to include both because just within a matter of five years, it, you know, things had shifted. And so that's okay. That is what we kind of appreciate coming alongside, you know, um, folks. And when we say the journey, that's what it is because it's a journey. Absolutely. So would you, would you say that it's accurate, like when we talk about uh, disability rights versus disability justice, that it's sort of like the difference between like non-oppression and liberation that. At, there you go. Okay. That's it. I love that. <laughs> okay. I love that. I love it. And, you know, when uh, I didn't get into the, the 10 principles of disability justice, but, you know, the idea when I think back to. Fannie Lou Hamer, who I love, a disabled, you know, Black um, activist um, that really worked heavily on voting rights. And the idea that until, you know, her, um, a book that that came out a year or so ago, you know, the quote, until we are all free, we're not free until everyone is free. Yeah. Um, And so that's exactly what it is. You know, we rights is really about the baseline. It's that we all deserve the same thing. 
And the fact is that like, we all don't need the exact same thing. Um, We just need to experience, you know, freedom in, in the ways that work for us, which, you know, within disability justice, which is very much a framework, because goodness knows we're in America, you know, there's anti, you know, capitalism, there's the idea of interdependence, um, you know, there's leading at, uh, leadership is from the place of those who are most impacted, and we're moving at a pace of the person that is, would often essentially be considered the slowest, you know, um, and so it is, counter to and as someone that runs an organization you know um it is counter and and trying to to balance that even within our own organization is tricky because we're working against deadlines and we're mm-hmm. you know um things are are you know time sensitive and and right now I'm I'm talking to you sitting on my bed like there would have been a time when <laughs> you know, heaven forbid that that was a thing, but you know what, like, I'm talking to you from the side of my bed, because that's what's comfortable for my body, you know, um, the most, and um, Stacey Park Milburn, who is a dear friend, um, and and disability justice activist who um, passed away a few years ago, you know, she was known to, like, lead movements laying down, you know, in her, her, her bed, like, that's, that's where we it is, and that's liberation, you yeah. know, um, it's moving past what um, society A has deemed uh, normal, um, valuable, uh, money-making, you know, all of the things. Absolutely. So do you do anything with the intersection of, you know, we, I can't remember where I heard this, but that um, culture eats policy for lunch. And I remember, you know, when I when I started talking with Kelly about the, all of these things and sort of like, so we love to pass laws like the ADA, right? And then people who aren't disabled go, way to go, we did it. And then yep. nothing happens, right? And so yeah. I think companies do the same thing, right? That we, we write this new policy and now it's addressed, but it's like, how do we how do we let people know that like, yeah, great, this landmark bill passed, nothing will happen unless we keep pressing on this? So, you know, I think um, one of the things people have asked, uh, I know, um, started asking particularly, so this is 2023, so three years ago was the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I remember the... (laughs) this question kept coming up, you know, if there was a new ADA, what would it be? You know? And it's like, it would just be the ADA in reality. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I'm like, why, why do we need, because of the fact of the matter is like, even kind of touting that, like when we go through day to day, I mean, I'm always looking at what's the most accessible city. What's the most, you know, if I'm going here, if I'm going there, what am I going to do? And so the ADA is 33 years old and it's still, you know, the loopholes, the, you know, all the things that are, that are happening that aren't supporting that in so many different ways it, it, uh, on the ground level. I mean, the fact is we are doing the work that we're doing as consultants, um, because it, when we think about employment as being like a huge you know aspect of it, when you think about um, you know everything from transportation to communication, like 
it's it's a, again grateful for don't want to you know discredit the people that have you know moved things forward but it's interesting um I went to uh, with a group of disabled women to Jordan um, a decade or so ago, and it was it was interesting being there because I, I feel like it's likely the experience of um, you know when we as this, as Americans travel abroad, it's like oh my gosh, you all the Amer- you have all the things, and you know America is so you know, progressive or whatever words, advanced and, um, you know, the way that, that in essence, it's like the idea of fangirling these, these folks that we were with, because we have the ADA and, you know, the Americans are doing it all the right way. And it was so interesting to me because as I looked at, you know, the interactions um, and the way the disability worked in, you know, while we were there um, and we were with a group of Jordanian women, you know, certainly you saw, you know, misogyny. I mean, there were so many different things, but I was so, I took away so much because I was impressed by the fact that, you know, interdependence looked so like, and this was before I knew even about disability justice and the idea that you stay with your family you know, and your family supports one another. I mean, people had levels in the house, you know, there was a wheelchair user who had her own floor. And then, you know, her sister lived up above that and her parents lived. And I was like, that's amazing. Like, we're so focused on independence. And like, I got to get out of, you know, my mother told me, which, you know, people are always impressed. Wow, you have this career, you've done all this. I'm like, because my mom told me when you're 18, I don't know where you're going to go, but you got to get up out of here. Like, that's <laughs> literally, you know. That's right. And so I'm like, that's what I work towards. Like, I got to go. I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether I'm a chair user or not. My mom says, I got to go. It. And so <laughs> that, I'm like, oh, wow, this is, you know, and there were so many things like that. No, they didn't have curb cuts. But there were people ready and waiting when we we breathed, well, let us help you. Let us, you know what I mean? And so I think when you talk about culture, um, certainly I'm not saying that, you know, this was the epitome of like embracing disability. But but what I am saying is when we think about culture and, you know, um, the commonalities, the language, things like that, that shape culture and, and the the experiences and the practices to me that's where it should start yeah well and I I you know when we talk about culture I mean I I think too about the the expectation of individuality and how that plays into white supremacy slash Americanness and that like you don't need an extra layer of shame like, but I am sure that there is this idea that like yeah I mean because I need someone to help me whatever I'm somehow less than and our culture oh, supports that story. And and the the goal is so that y'all can just keep being you without bothering me. Like, exactly. That's how we think about yeah, it. That's it. And you know, it's it's when you talk about shame, and even though I have been a disabled, you know, been disabled my entire life, there's still this progression on um of disability based on age. I mean, we all just in, in the aging process, um, things look you know, different. And, (laughs) and I think about, you know, I was so 
devastated um, when I went to high school and I was going to have to get a power, a power wheelchair, um, you know, because I, to me, this, you know, the stigma is it makes you look more disabled, you know, right. like um, I had been using a manual chair, people were pushing me around, but now I'm going to be in this big building and like you, you, they wanted me to, you know, be able to maneuver on my own. In my head at the time, you know, and I think that going, so you wanted like some probably old person to be pushing you from class to class versus the freedom that having a power wheelchair, you know, would, would give me, but I didn't see it that way, you know, and, and, um, and then even I think about now, yesterday I had a, um, a meeting with um, some, some occupational therapists for some assistive technology that like a year ago, I, I would have never, you know, considered, I mean, there are so many, and, and it has to do with, again, some the stigma of, you know, looking more disabled or something that, you know, um, in any way, shape or form would make people think less of, or even to myself, you know, and I say I, a big one, this is full transparency, but I love to tell this story is, you know, um, like bladder control. I, um, I, I use a catheter and I, you would have, oh my gosh, in my, you know, twenties, if you would have said you can have this, you know, catheter so that you can go to the bathroom whenever you want to, you don't have to worry about, you can drink coffee, you can drink, I do not care. That is going to look horrible. I don't want anything that is going to, you know, and now I'm like, why didn't I do this 20 years ago? Like, why <laughs> didn't anybody tell me, you know, I can drink my water and my coffee and my, all of these things. And Again, you know, to your point, it's that, you know, we have the, from all sides, there is this idea, even when it comes to access of like, you know, um, we're going to help you do the things, but there's still the stigma around it, that even if you have access to the things, you don't necessarily want them Yeah, because of how <laughs> the world has made, you know, a disability look or seeing, you know? Yeah. It, I, I don't even know if this is a question you can answer, but like, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the, the sort of like, I mean, this is all about intersections, right? But like, what's the intersection of like surrender, aging, wisdom, like, you know, like, was there a pitch when you were 20 that you would have been like, yeah, I'll do that. Or like, no. is it really, you just gotta <laughs> no, do it. I don't, <laughs> no, I literally, I mean, and it's, I think we all just, it's, they say with age comes wisdom, right? And it's just things that you cared about that you, you know, that we realize are just not, those things are, um, you know, the idea of liberating, you know, in the sense that it's my choice. Yeah. And the fact is that it should be my choice that if I don't want a catheter and I want someone to help me go to the bathroom five times a day, that I can do that yeah. rather than the fact that I got to the place where I didn't have that level of support and I was 
not drinking water all day because I was going 12 hours without using the bathroom. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And so it's, I don't know so much. It's, it's that form of, A, I do, I, what I will say is this, back to your question. I think that, you know, having, and the reason why I started in this work, I did not want to work in disability at all. I told you, I was like completely not trying to even identify as such. But <laughs> once I got up to the nation's capital and I'm thinking, this is where everything is going to be perfect. Like I, I was, grew up in Kentucky and then I went to school in Tennessee. Of course, it's the South. They don't have things together. But I'm moving to Washington, D.C. and I should be perfectly fine. Like I can get my health care, my personal care attendance. I'll be able to go wherever I want to go. I can get on the metro and live my life. And I mean, look like the complete, you know, opposite happened when I got there. It took me, I didn't have a consistent caregiver for two years. I mean, Ugh. there were nights when I was sleeping in my wheelchair. Like there, there was something, and it became, you know, a a moment when I was presented with an opportunity to come, you know, support um, youth in transition thing and thinking about from, from school to work or, or to, from school to, you know, um, secondary education and me being like, geez, I wish I would have known, you know, and I wish people would have, you know, told me that I was going to at 22 years old have to be, you know, employing people and, paying taxes and showing, you know, and I wish they would have, you know, shown me how to do certain things. So I think it at some level, you know, just there is the age comes wisdom, things I wouldn't have done. But I also do believe that if I had knowledge earlier um, and, and mentors and people that were kind of showing me possibility then I would have made, you know, different choices. I remember, you know, there was a girl that I was mentoring a few years back, same high school, same diagnosis as mine. And she, you know, the reason her, her mom uh, reached out to me was because she's like, you're doing all these things. She wants to leave home. She wants to, you know, um, basically kind of the life that you live. And I, I probably surprised her because I, I was like, yo, this Don't is hard. <laughs> this is hard. Yeah. Stay home as long as you can and get your, you know what I'm saying? And figure these things out. Like I know from social media and all this stuff that it looks like, wow, you know, you're living the life and it, but you have no idea like the systems and the things that, you know, we, and so I'm not saying don't do it again, choice. Right but know the other side of it. Go in with open eyes. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So you were, I don't even know how to properly, uh, you were, you made Crip Camp happen. Uh, Um. Well, well, I will say we, Crip Camp, the film was, you know, um, created, directed, produced by um, Jim Lebrecht, um, Nicole, Noonan and um oh goodness Sarah why am I blanking on Sarah's name right last night um right now but they um you know really developed this incredible film and Judy Human um was 
uh, a significant part of that, uh, obviously in the film and so many, so many others um, that were a part of that film. And so that came along, conceptualized definitely before I was around. Um, and then it was um, uh, supported, executive produced by uh, President Barack and Mrs. Michelle um, Obama. And so, and then Netflix picked it up. And so to that end, I do not take the credit for the amazingness of, of the film. Um, what we were able to do, you know, as the film was getting ready to be released into the world was to uh, essentially take over what in the corporate world would be considered a marketing campaign, but um, was known as impact production. And so how do we take the messages of this film, because it technically ended in 1990, and bring it into present day conversation. And so, you know, for us, the work was really um, around acknowledging some of the things I just shared. And that really is that Crip Camp is the story of the disability rights movement. And, you know, 30 years later, there's so much that has emerged. And how do we, you know, bring that into present day, acknowledging the gaps and opportunities. And so that's what the work that um, Stacey and I started out, you know, together along with an incredible um, uh, impact team of, of folks, uh, Sophia and Rosemary and, and others, um, to bring it to the forefront of the world. And I will say, you know, um, you know, it was nominated for an Oscar. We had an opportunity to go to the Oscars, and all of that was was the work of of the incredible filmmakers. And, and I, I will say, you know, I think that I know that the campaign was um, supportive of that as well. So in your in your role, did you did you slash do you have a sense? I mean, it's been almost three years since it came out, um, how it's been received and sort of things you wish it did or things you hoped it would do that it didn't do. Mm, that's really great. Um, that's a really great, great question. Um, it exceeded our expectations, but I think that the timing of it was great. Um, interestingly, um, it came <laughs> out literally as the shutdowns were happening. Like it, uh, it was mid, mid March, um, when it came out of 2020 and that was like California shut down. And so people were like Tiger King, Crip Camp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. But what we, where we kind of, and I think, you know, we were elevated from an impact production perspective was that um, people likely have experienced impact production and didn't know it. When a, a documentary, a film comes out, they often do a screening in a theater. You know, there's focus groups, there's conversations, there's things that are happening to, you know, bringing in organizations. Where do we go? How do we take this issue? For us, um, you know, as the shutdowns were happening, you know, folks were going, what are, what are we going to do? We can't travel the world and talk about this film. We can't be in in-person screenings. And disabled people are innovative, like we are used to operating in a world that wasn't <laughs> built for us. Right. And quite honestly, online has been the space where we've been competing forever. And so we saw it as an opportunity to kind of not demonstrate because we were trying to prove ourselves, but just to go, okay, yeah, we know how to do this. We've, done, we've been doing this. And so 
people were like shocked that we originally we were going to try to do an in-person camp program was like, I don't know, it could have been 40 or 50 people. But we ended up hosting an online summer, you know, a Zoom experience where over the summer we had 10,000 people join us from all over the world, you know, that were getting up at the wee hours of the morning to, you know, come in and and talk about, you know, everything from trauma-informed care to, you know, looking at disability and spirituality and um, and things like that. So in that way, it really, our primary goal was to uplift our own community. And for that, um, other people have benefited. Great. That's wonderful. Um, and the consulting work that we do is, is where we have been able to grow. I did not see that. And, um, and I'm grateful for it, but the initial intent for the campaign for us was to uplift, bring together, particularly in a hard time, um, you know, disabled folks. And it did that. And it continues to connect us um, to folks. And, you know, people, I was on a call yesterday where somebody's like, oh my goodness, I still haven't watched it. I'm like, how? But that's okay. <laughs> right. It's still on Netflix. Go watch that's it. That's right. You Go know? watch it. Totally. <laughs> So what, um, I mean, can you, can you point to like, when you, when you close your eyes and you imagine what would make maybe the biggest shift that would, um, I mean, almost like, let's say put you out of business, you know, like what, what? (laughs) I mean, there's, I'll say personally, so there's a personal aspect and I think like a business, you know, more of a business aspect as one that I started at the beginning of the conversation talking about, you know, a different world and, you know, for better, for worse, I'll bring up the Cosby show because there was a Claire Huxtable and, you know, that was, you know, living single Khadija James, like as one that grew up seeing that, but still did not see myself represented um, you know, to get to the place where it's not just, A, we're not side characters or, you know, just the, the token, but that society is literally represented um, based on what it actually is in all of the different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that for me is, you know, the dream. And it's not, and a wheelchair user, a black wheelchair user is not you know on tv with the storyline of like being a disabled person she just is because that's you know who she is and so um that you know media the entertainment um even the technology is um uh representative of the world that is, and I would say that's that's the dream across the board. I think again, personally, um, you know, it's it's in industry and culture. It's it's fashion. It's you know, um, it's the tech. It's the you know, in music. It's in you know all of those um, places. And I think from a more of a business or corporate side, it is that when we look at leadership, when we look at you know the decision makers, when we um, you know, are seeing how decisions are are made in the concept of design, not just universal design, because 
that's still it's it's a that's a murky one you know um because what's universal like there's still um um <laughs> there's still a baseline even for universal you yeah. know what i mean yeah um that but that it is again everything that is is more representative of the diversity of needs and i think you know we talk a lot in our work about access needs what does it take for a person to be in this space and it doesn't have to be with the diagnosis or disability it could be as simple as like you know i got here today and it's 12 30 and i haven't eaten and so i need to um you know turn off my camera and go grab a snack because it's going to help me be more present in this space and that's not because of a diagnosis it's just you know the humanity of who i you know, who I am. And so if for me, it's, I need to be on the bed because that's comfortable or, you know, I get migraines and my camera is off or whatever it is that we're seeing ourselves, you know, from that perspective um, of meeting and supporting one another um, in that way, that is when I, I think our work will, will be done. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh because um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's good to imagine. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so I want to be really respectful of your time. Do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, so I wonder. Uh, and again, I don't know if you can weigh in on this, but I think about people like Adrienne Marie Brown and Sonia Renee Taylor, and sort of the body's not an apology and pleasure activism. And yes. how what what are the conversations? within the disability community about these sorts of things that I think tend to be consumed as helping what we call temporarily able-bodied people feel better about themselves. And like, what what's the role of that kind of work for the disability community? Oh my goodness, it's huge. And love Adrian uh, Marie <laughs> Brown and so many others, uh, Leah Lakshmi Pepsna, Sam Ransna, who um, wrote a book called Care Work and um, has a, another more recent book out and um, other folks that are, are within the community that are really tackling those, um, you know, um, when it comes to, um, you know, even the idea of the body is not a and an apology and all of that. Um, I will be honest, like I am st still because as one who had a diagnosis that didn't feel like it impacted me um, and day to day, things are shifting and changing. Um, even the idea of rest, you know, and um, the NAP ministry has rest is resistance out. Yes. And that has been really enlightening for me because her standpoint really is from that uh you know is, is talking about it from a you know white supremacy you know black liberation perspective and yes. i'm seeing people usurp that in ways that is are you know what i mean <laughs> deeply like, problematic it's so problematic yes. like i'm like it doesn't start with you. Like it, it does not start <laughs> with you. And yay for you getting your rest, but you weren't tired like we were not here. Yeah, you know? we're not, you're not ancestrally tired. This is exactly. not the same conversation. Exactly. And so even within, you know, disability, you know, it's it, 
so nuanced because we have our bodies and we deserve rest. And going back to intersections, when I'm reading that ministry, I'm like, it's talking about me. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, and it's, and disabled people can take that up. They can. And also, it still might not necessarily, she's not directly talking to you. Yeah. If you're white. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. So I, there's so much space and so much need. Um, and, and there's so many folks that are doing um, the work, but it's, it is very nuanced for those reasons that, you know, even when we look at, um, for example, um, name is slipping me, um, today, uh, the work of, um, you know, disability justice. And, um, even when we look at the definition of, of ableism and the idea that ableism really is really, really, really rooted in racism because it has to do with how society um, has objectified and um, you have to produce, and, you know, our worth on production. Slavery in and of itself, that's all it was about. Yep. So um, again, it's, it's, it's that, that, uh, that the nuance there of where, what, it, what are the roots from, you know, the beginning of the world, America, you know, so on and so forth. T.L. Lewis, that's what I was trying to think about um, in terms of their work around, uh, you know, and, and particularly defining ableism from that perspective of, of being rooted in, in oppression and ableism. Yeah, or sorry, and racism. Easy to confuse. Yes. <laughs> um, so, do you have a sense that, um, you know, when we look at the reality and we really internalize the truth of no one's free until we're all free, and mm-hmm. we think about the solidarity that able-bodied people could engage in, um, mm-hmm. does, is there, I mean, there is value, but I guess I, I, I'm going to ask you to quantify it. What's the, okay. what's the value of, a, I think there's value in able-bodied people stopping their lies about their ableness <laughs> and being much more open about when they can't do a thing or the limitations that they experience. And to sort of like, just if everybody put their stuff out, we would all yes. feel a lot less pathologized in our brokenness. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's that, and I love that you use the term, the, the phrase, the word brokenness. Um, and it, I, I was thinking, I was sharing with somebody the other day, but there are so many circumstances when we are leading trainings, because we, we do that quite a bit, where folks disclose, like, within the setting, like, you know, I didn't even realize that that could classify as being disabled. And again, labels are just that. And, I, you know, for us, we, as much as I've talked about disability identity and pride and all that, I remember when I started um, you know, my first job in, in disability and, and I had a boss and I had read this book, No Pity by Joseph Shapiro. And it was the history of the disability rights movement far beyond before Crip Camp, um, you know, had been created. And I, I'm like, I don't know, I think I was like 26 years old and I like, you know, rolling in his office and I'm, and he's an, an older, you know, white disabled man. And, um, 
like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Like, I did not know that all this existed. And wow, like, I feel so bad that I was so ashamed all these years. And, you know, I hated riding the bus. And now that I realize how much work folks did in the 70s to make sure that I could ride the bus, like, I won't ever complain. And he was like, that's great. Let me stop you right there. (laughs) He was like, know that not everybody is going to feel that way. And that's okay. Like not everybody has to have like this exuberance, you know, from an identity or a label space. Your job, and this was at the time, my job was just to help ensure that young disabled people have the tools that they need to navigate the world. And whether they are proud of their disability, that's what they deserve, you know? And like, they deserve to be able to make informed choices and live the lives, you know, that they, they want to live. And so in the same, you know, way, I think even today and in the work that we do, we don't expect, you know, everyone to come in and want to be an advocate or talk about their disability or whatever, but that should be an environment where if they want to disclose, they can, and they have no, you know, and they and they don't feel any you know, shame about it. It should be an environment where they can ask what they're, you know, for their needs or take a rest or not have to justify a mental health day or, you know, they need to go feed the meter. I mean, anything, like, you know, talk about, like, that's a, those are just needs and that's where we have to get to. Yeah. Well, we'll have to keep planting the seeds of the trees that we won't get to sit under. But um, yes, you know, yes, I, I know. mean, <laughs> I know. I we know. we joke internally at Healwell that we're going to go down trying. We are. And that, oh, oh know, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm, to I'm, lay your uh, head on your pillow at night. You got to do the yes, things you can do. I say all the time, it's about the one, you know, it's the one person, it's the one impact. It's the one thing that a client changed on their website that we were like, fighting for so like yes. you cannot say that you cannot do that you know and it's like okay we yeah. got captioning thank goodness we've one been, more for years we've been trying to get captioning at, yes. on whatever this is Ugh. and it happened you mm-hmm. know last year you know interpreters at the oscars like i mean you know it's one step at a time absolutely yeah <sighs> Well, thank you so much for, um, for being out there and doing what you do. And, uh, and thank you for sticking with us as we worked to schedule this over many months and all oh, the things. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad we had this happen. And, you know, I, it, I mean, I admit that, you know, people, folks reach out, but um, to the point that I shared earlier, whether it's who we're working with or who we're spending time talking to, do enough of a of the research and and look at the language and even the emails and go okay this is a worthwhile conversation so thank you for creating um a cultivating and um having the conversations that make these worthwhile (laughs) (laughs) well it's our pleasure and um we are honored that you spent some time with us our listeners are gonna love this and uh you might have more people banging on your door so awesome yeah. Thank you so much. Thank it you. Was great to be with you, Cal. Take care, Andrea. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.